All right, civilizaciones. I think it's fair to use um, a Spanish term for civilizations for this one. What do you think? Dude? What is it in Portuguese? It's probably civilizacao, probably <laughs> something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we go to, Bo so we we left Bolivar. He was just about to set up in a in a in a city called Angostura and do a lot of work there. But before we do, I wanted to talk about Mexican independence, which deserves its own episode. But we're not going to do it because um, we can't do everything. You know, we just can't. We can do a lot, and we're going to do a lot. But uh, giving Mexico's independence the what it deserves, we probably can't do. So. A super brevissima resumen of the of the wars of Mexican independence, because it's in many ways the same forces that are at work. Certainly, it's the same enemy, right? It's the same Spanish empire that's falling apart. And in the in a sense, it's all spurred in Mexico as in South America by Napoleon's takeover of Spain and the ouster of the monarch, which leads to the creation of these juntas. And there were juntas set up in New Spain as well, just as the one that Bolivar himself was part of in Venezuela. Um, a couple of interesting notes that I came across while reading about Mexico, which is relevant to the whole story, the overall story. One is that the British piracy against the Spanish fleet was reaching uh, unbelievable levels by the end of the 18th century. So there's one number I found. The British commandeered 186 ships in Spanish ships in 1798 alone. Um, when was the year before Tra the Battle of Trafalgar, Dave? Trafalgar was 1805. So in 1804, the British basically impounded the entire silver fleet, like all the silver that, that was coming from... Uh, the new the colonies to Spain um, and that I think partly because uh, the British did that the Spanish took a measure which was uh, disastrous so first of all they lost all the silver but then they decided okay what we can do is we can make um, that money up by taking uh, property from the church Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so they passed this thing called the Law of Consolidation in New Spain. And the Law of Consolidation basically says, okay, the church is to hand over uh, some huge, I don't know, 50 or like some huge percentage of all their, their property. They thought that that property was land. But in fact, most of the church's property was um, loans. So what they were doing was the church acted as a bank for Indian... Um, and peasants, like, everywhere. So, like, you couldn't get uh, anything without um, money that you were getting from the church. So when they passed the law of consolidation, like, the church has all these books, right? They're like, okay, we have this much out to this guy, this much out to this peasant, this much out to this peasant. Then uh, the, the, the tax collectors come around and say, this is what we need all this, all this money from you. The church has to then call the, all those loans in. Mm -hmm. So they suddenly recall basically all the money that's in circulation in Mexico at once. So uh, people don't like that very much. Um, there's a so the independence um, movement, there's a thing called the Querétaro conspiracy. That's the town. Um, and it's led, there's, there's a bunch of people, in, including people involved in the government at various levels that, uh, 
we're gonna we're in on the Querétaro conspiracy, and they were gonna overthrow the government, you know, take over the garrisons, whatever, um, become and declare. I don't think they were gonna declare independence. This was a case where they were royal, kind of royalist inclined, um, but they get their cover gets blown. Basically, uh, too many people are in on the conspiracy, and somebody tells somebody else, and somebody tells somebody else. So. Uh, they start, um, it starts, they start getting rounded up. And then there's this parish priest, Manuel Hidalgo, a very colorful character. Um, and he realizes that their cover is blown. So he just pulls the trigger. He starts the rebellion early. And he has a, a surprising amount of success. And it's not because he's a good military commander. He's a terrible military commander. Um, but he raises unbelievable numbers of people. So he is not shy about raising the lower orders, the in- indigenous and the uh, castes, as they're called. And his other thing is he kind of views the right to pillage and loot and plunder some kind of reparations for all the things the Spanish have done. So despite the fact that there are people uh, in his uh, command structure, like a, there's a guy named Allende who's very much against that kind of plunder, Hidalgo basically says, look, you know, there's nothing we can do. This is part of war. This is part of what they do to us. So we're going to, you know, I'm not going to stop them from doing it, which is interesting. It's possible that he couldn't have done it even if he wanted to, but either way, he doesn't do anything about it. Um, and so there's lots of pillage, lots of loot, and there's rape, and there's all kinds of atrocities that are committed by these rebels. Um, and eventually, they lose to a force that's one-tenth of their numbers because they have no discipline and no mili- you know, very few military professionals and... Um, so he, Hidalgo himself, is caught and executed. I think this is around 1811, 1812. And before he's executed, he actually apologizes. And historians apparently are pretty convinced that he was sincere. He, he apologizes for all the atrocities. And he says, you know, if I had known that it was going to go this way, I wouldn't have done it. Um, he, there, you know, we were talking about the Irish. So I came across this name. One of the rebels was named O'Donohu. Uh So I'm pretty sure that's uh, O'Donohue. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know much. I wasn't able to find out that much about him, but I thought it was cool. And it's pronounced, you know, it's spelt with a J and an accent on above the U. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so Hidalgo, Hidalgo's protege, Hidalgo has a number of people, also priests that he, you know, he, they're his students. And one of them is uh, Jose Mar- Maria Morelos. And I think there's a state of Morelos or at least a city of Morelos in Mexico now named after him. Or Me- Morelia, maybe Morelia. Anyway, uh, he, Jose Maria Morelos, he keeps the rebellion going for a long time. He has better military discipline. He's actually a pretty good military commander. No Bolivar, but um, eventually (laughs) he loses. What's that? I was just laughing. If you're holding up to the standard of Bolivar, that's not not really high yet. (laughs) Not yet. No, not in 1812, which is when Morelos is fighting. Um, But... Morelos also loses. Um, he loses actually a battle to a disciplined uh, force under a royalist general named Agustin Iturbide. So Agustin Iturbide is somebody you're going to want to know about because he actually becomes important about eight years later. So the mutiny is crushed. I mean, sorry, the the 
these re- re- rebellions are crushed and there's it, for the next eight years or between 1812 and 1820 there's lots of small groups of rebels that do all harrying and harassment and attacks and raids on spanish forces all over the country because the country's huge right and uh it's impossible for the spanish to uh control all that territory especially in the state that they're in and then in 1820 which is this is important for bolivar too the spanish are planning to send this huge force tens of thousands of uh troops all to put the colonies in in order and there's a mutiny in spain and uh and the mutineers basically forced spain to accept a constitutional monarchy so there's one of the local commanders is a guy named vicente a rebel commanders that's still rebelling at this time in 1820 is a guy named vicente guerrero and the royalists in mexico send agustin iturbide because he's their best general to go and crush guerrero so instead of crushing Guerrero, though, Iturbide basically joins Guerrero and uh, they declare independence. They have this thing called the Plan of Iguala um, and the three guarantees. The three guarantees are that um, Mexico will become a constitutional monarchy. Uh, Mexico's religion will be Catholicism and Mexico will be independent of Spain. So there's a lot of debate about what kind of monarchy it's going to be. And eventually they decide that it's going to be an empire, uh, the Mexican empire, and the emperor will be uh, Agustin Iturbide. <laughs> so uh, he, he, there's a big ceremony. He becomes emperor, uh, but it doesn't hold up very long. They, um, they oust him. It becomes a republic, and then he goes into exile. He first goes to Italy. They guarantee him a subsidy. Um, and that he's f- cool as long as he's in Italy. But then he, for various reasons, goes to London um, and he says uh, he's he wants to come back, not to be emperor or anything, but he figures they need his help for some reason, military reasons. Uh, so he's heading he heads back to Mexico. But while he's on the boat back to Mexico, the Republic declares him a traitor. So when he comes aboard, um, no, when he comes ashore, sorry, when he comes ashore, they arrest him and they execute him in 1824 um, at age 40. And his last words apparently were, I'm not a traitor. No, don't do it. Just kind of sad, sad ending for the uh, guy who brought independence to. So, yeah, if you th- we think, you know, we're, we're going to talk about how Bolivar ends up um, and you can be sad about that, but yeah. not as bad as he could be. You know what I'm so, wondering? He, yeah. I mean, obviously he's not an aristocrat. Or is he? No. No, no. So making him no. emperor is rather unusual. I wonder if it's just the example of Napoleon, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, 100% it's the example of Napoleon. That's There's no there's no question. It's pretty, it's all very explicit um, in those in those terms. Yeah, definitely. And the, and the, Brazil also becomes an empire around this time. Yeah. So back to Bolivar. Bolivar sets up in Angostura and he creates a national army. So this is the first uh, where he creates a national army here and he recruits the British Legion. So remember, there are, it's, this is 1817 now. There are ne- veterans of the Napoleonic Wars everywhere. There's cheap equipment. There's materials, uniforms. Um, so the British Legion... Um, lots of British leave to go to join the British Legion and not too many of them show up. 
uh, end up getting there. So there's uh, it's it's an ordeal to get there, uh, but we do get several um, British legionnaires, and they have de- good great deeds and exploits uh, alongside Bolivar. And the official biographer of Bolivar is uh, Daniel O'Leary who gets gets there in this time and O'Leary is you know all of nobody can write about Bolivar without O'Leary's materials O'Leary's the one who tells us most of what we know about Bolivar actually um so Bolivar has again this this period of revolutionary consolidation uh he's got a rival commander who's who goes by Paez whose name is Paez and Paez had 10,000 men half a million horses um, and he brings Paez onto his team. Um, f- eventually, I think I'm gonna, I think I have a, no, it's not about him. Um, so he brings Paez on board with various kinds of sneaky maneuvers. And they're the leader of New Granada, who's, um, who's basically, which is basically Colombia. The leader's name is Francisco de Paula Santander. Santander is a name of a town in Colombia. It's, you know, Colombia has the name Santander everywhere because he's their equivalent of Bolivar, I guess. And he also joins up with Bolivar. Um, so Paez, the rival commander, has a big victory at a village called Mucuritas in 1817. In this period, uh, Bolivar is sleeping six hours a night. And so, you know, we talked about Bonaparte who slept two hours and Toussaint who slept two hours. So Bolivar is pretty, uh, pretty weak compared <laughs> to these guys. <laughs> but uh, he might be a better rider. He rides uh, unbelievable distances on his horse. And this riverboat mobility, he takes 5,000 men over 500 miles in 20 days to join up with uh, Commander Paez in San Juan de Payara in uh, January 1818. And they have a big battle uh, in February um, 1818, Calabozo. And there's a story of Paez riding into the water. He takes his horses and they ride into the water and they swim to go and attack the Spanish uh, in boats. And um, so the Spanish were so confused and (laughs) demoralized by this that a lot of them retreated. They were almost, uh, they almost had the Spanish surrounded, but the Spanish royalist commander Morillo, he managed to slip through the cordon and escape. Bolivar follows him up the mountain, but um, that was a bad move. Trying to fight the Spanish in the mountains uh, is something Bolivar later regrets and develops alternative techniques uh, instead. So he loses a big battle to them uh, on the, up, up the mountains. He goes back to Calabozo and back to Angostura. And that was a big loss. So he has to kind of lick his wounds there. He um, convokes an elected Congress of the whole nation, which he does not control. Um, he has emissaries from the U.S. and the U.K. present at this uh, celebration of the Congress of Grand Columbia. Um, was it so, called? Uh, was it called the Congress? I think so. Yeah. So a yeah. definite tip of the hat to the Americans. Oh, you're gonna hear some tips of the hat to the Americans <laughs> no, and the British. <laughs> oh my God! So he says uh, he has this speech where he says, you know, I'm just a leaf in the wind, uh, you know, being blown around by these events, and and he says this about the the British. Okay, 
He says, the whole of America together is not equal to a British fleet. The entire Holy Alliance is powerless against her liberal principles combined with immense features. Popular sovereignty, division and balance of powers, civil liberty, freedom of conscience in the press, and all that is sublime in politics. Can there be greater freedom in any other form of republic? Yeah, so it's a lot of that's a it's a that's a level of anglophilia that is not easy for me to swallow. But you know what? That, that was that's Bolivar, and like, who am I to question the liberator, right? Um, there's an interesting thing here about uh, the way that they view race in Latin America being different, and this is this comes up. I'm reading Gerald Horn a lot these days too, as you know, um, and it's like. Uh, Bolivar and the Mexicans too, they have this thing where they talk basically, they believe that, that there are different races, but they also, their dream of is basically to integrate these races and create a new race in the Americas. So, and they also want all these races to be different, to be equal under the law. So he says, um, this is Bolivar. Nature makes men unequal in intelligence, temperament, strength, and character. Laws correct this disparity by placing the individual within society that give him a fictitious equality that is properly termed political and social. Um, and he's, of course, against slavery. Nature, justice, and good policy demand the emancipation of the slaves. From now on, there will be only one class of men in Venezuela. All will be citizens. Um, so he despises monarchy, but he does favor a president for life system. At this point, he wants a hereditary Senate, an elected Congress, and then a Supreme Committee of Censors. So it's like some kind of, you know, like the Iranian, um, what do they call it? Guardian Council? That kind of thing. So there's like one body of wise men that are above um they have certain powers. I guess the Supreme Court in the US is something. I wonder if he's thinking of the Roman model so they have the romans have a senate but they don't have a congress no but the uh, the consuls were only elected for a year and yeah. yet the censor is the highest office that you could aspire oh, to they so yeah uh, must be they review the role uh the roll call of the senate and determine who like shouldn't be there and they can actually expel members of the senate oh yeah must be that must be it must be rome and then he says, he, he's at this party, he, he stands up on the dining table, typically Bolivar, right? He says, as I cross this table from one end to the other, I shall march from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from Panama to Cape Horn until the last Spaniard is expelled. So uh, I would like to see Napoleon do something like that. Um, but... By February 1819, there's a stalemate. Bolivar does not want to go up in the mountains and get the Spanish. They can't be dislodged from there, but the rebels control the lowlands. So Bolivar has a big plan, a big, bold plan. He faints like he's going to go take Caracas, but then he crosses the mountains and he takes New Granada back from the Spanish. And it's a long march. Um, he starts going he goes up with 2000 men and he comes back down and has only 1200 um at the top of the mountains he's gone up thir to 13000 feet so um the writer that i was reading about this basically says this is this is a bigger deal than hannibal crossing the alps uh to fight rome 
as soon as he gets down the mountain in New Granada, 800 new men sign right up. Um, and he keeps his forces keep growing. So it's not like a royalist stronghold by any means. Um, so he, he has a big army by the time he faces the Spanish at Boyacá, and he wins that battle, and he takes Bogotá on August 8, 1819. And Morillo, the rival commander, he says, Bolívar in one day has finished the efforts of five years of campaigning. So he's pretty frustrated at this point. Um, Bolívar appoints Santander vice president and leaves him in charge of New Granada, and then he goes back to Angostura, and that's when he declares uh, Gran Colombia after Columbus. So speaking of the need to change names, right? I wondered when you were going to go there. Okay. (laughs) Colombia. I mean, Bolivia is a good name. Venezuela, you know, little Venice. I don't know. Uh, It's called America after Amerigo Vespucci. So we've got a lot of these names uh, from the conquistadors and uh, explorers. All right. So now to the mutiny. Um, the Spanish, they get it. They make a deal with the Russians to get 47 Russian warships, and they're planning to bring 20,000 infantry and 3,000 cavalry. But there's a mutiny on January 1st, 1820. Uh, the constitutional monarch is restored. That's Ferdinand, right? Dave? Yeah. 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 Um, and the, the Ferdinand says uh, to the royalists that they have to negotiate with Bolivar. So that's the that's the end that's the end uh, of that for them. So Bolivar agrees to the armistice, but he knows he's he's uh, doing the Chairman Mao, you know, talk fight talk fight thing. He's he's gonna do an armistice to get ready for the final battle. He does not agree to submission to Spain, but he does negotiate like a Geneva Convention kind of thing. There's a rules of war agreement that he negotiates. So remember, he was the one who declared this total war. Um, policy. What was it called? Uh, war to the death. He called it the war to the death policy. And he's now like really very much not wanting to do that. He wants uh, rules of war. So November 26, 1820, he has a meeting with Morillo, who they've been fighting for years and years. And uh, there, the accounts of this meeting between Morillo and, uh, and Bolivar are... Uh, something else. So I'm just going to read this uh, account of the meeting by a third party. It's not by O'Leary or Bolivar. Finally, at the end of the night, each being completely intoxicated, a toast was given to the healths of both generals at once by their order. And according to the custom, the glasses were dashed to pieces on the table, which the commanders then severally mounted again to embrace each other. Unfortunately, their motions not being very steady, it suddenly gave way and they abruptly descended to the floor where they rolled for some time until picked up, still embracing each other with the greatest vehemence. The chiefs being carried to a bedchamber, they slept in the same room and all retired until the next morning where the second part of the friendly compact was made known. So it's kind of like more like a wedding or something. I don't know if you'd be allowed. I don't know if the bride and groom would be allowed to do this at at, at a wedding. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have been allowed to do it at my wedding. <laughs> so uh, so the armistice lasts uh, until April 28, 1821. And Bolivar's whole plan was uh, to fight in the summertime. So the big battle, uh, they fight at Carabobo in June 1821. And Bolivar wins. He enters Caracas on June 28, 1821. And 
Venezuela will never be a colony again. Uh, until <laughs> speaking now, we are we are recording this, everyone, in 2020. Uh, who knows what will happen uh, moving forward? But uh, for for those 200 years, Venezuela has been liberated. Bolivar was 39 years old, um, and Panama actually becomes part of this Gran Colombia. A uh, quarter of a million people have died in this war so far. Just for- so. Yeah, go ahead. Just for a little background, what's going on in Spain at the same time is really interesting. Um, yeah, you're right. Ferdinand is the, the son of the Spanish king that Napoleon dethroned. And mm-hmm. after Napoleon's fall, the Bourbons come back. And, right. of course, they act like nothing happened. <laughs> right? We're, we're right. back to absolutism. And you know what? We're going to build ourselves a massive palace in Madrid. So this is the Palacio Real, which mm-hmm. is really a stupendous uh, piece of architecture, but it's also a massive slap in the face to the entire country, right? Because right. everybody yeah. knows who fought the French, and it wasn't the royal family, it was the right. people. So yeah. for the king to act like nothing's changed, you know, get down on your knees and kiss my boots, this is a little much. So you have a series of uh, revolutions in in Spain. They're almost annual. Wow. Uh, so that might explain why Ferdinand is willing to negotiate in South America because the situation back home in Spain is... So he could easily lose Spain, so he's not... Yeah, in the fact, the most Spain. serious uh, revolution happens in 1821-22, and uh-huh. the, the monarchy is at least temporarily overthrown and now there's talk of oh constitutions and there's talk of uh even of of republic which alarms the european rulers like here we go again another french revolution so they have a meeting another congress after the congress of vienna they they met again a couple of times the congress of verona in 1822 where it was decided that uh, there were troubles in Italy, so Austria was authorized to take their army and go crush uprisings in Italy. And Mm. France was given the green light to go and crush the revolution in Spain. So 100,000 French soldiers crossed the Pyrenees and invade Spain. It's not that long since Napoleon's invasion, and yet the reaction is completely different. Because the rebels were anti-clerical, the church supports the French invasion, and so do the common people. So instead of being ambushed and, and sniped at, the French army actually, you know, they get welcomed and have flowers handed to them, that sort of thing. So they come in and crush the revolution and put the Bourbons back on the throne. And they have, a, a I guess, a constitution, but it's imposed from above rather than, you know, legislated from the middle or from below or anything like that. So that would explain why Spain's ability to fight in South America is really seriously uh, hampered at this point. Right. So Bolivar doesn't just sit back and enjoy Venezuela and Colombian independence because uh, he wants to get Peru. And Peru is the, the I mean, there are two, if there are two crown jewels, uh, one of them is Mexico and the other one's Peru. And they're both huge sources of uh, precious metal, right? So Peru is the big silver. I mean, Mexico was also a huge source of silver at this time. 
Uh, and so, but Peru is uh, really important. And in 1823, Bolivar wants to go and liberate Peru. And it's not because if he doesn't, um, no one else will. It's because if he doesn't, someone else will. <laughs> General Jose de San Martin, who was the li- basically the liberator of Argentina. Um, and then there's the O'Hag- Bernard <laughs> O'Higgins, right, in, in Chile. But they... They've both, Argentina and Chile have been liberated by San Martin and O'Higgins. And San Martin, who's going by the name, uh, the title, The Protector, um, he's on his way. He's on his way to Peru. And Bolivar Bolivar knows that. So Bolivar uh, has this kind of negotiation with San Martin. Uh, He gets to this town, Guayaquil, Guayaquil first. And uh, when San Martin arrives, he has his men welcome San Martin to Colombian soil. So he's just declared uh, Gran, Gran Colombia, right? So San Martin is kind of offended, but he doesn't really know what to do. So he kind of waits a day and then he comes to negotiate. Um, they go into a room. Nobody knows what happens in this room. Uh, Bolivar comes out and says, I'm sorry, I couldn't agree to San Martin uh, what he wanted because he wanted to restore a monarchy. San Martin probably didn't want to restore a monarchy. Um, but San Martin wanted either a joint command of the armies. Bolivar refused that. San Martin was like, fine, I'll be second in command. Bolivar refused that. Uh, Bolivar knew that San Martin's troops were mostly Chilean and San Martin himself was Argentinian. So Bolivar figured if the Argentin- if the Chileans are going to fight for an Argentinian, they'll probably fight for a Venezuelan too. Um, at one point, Bolivar basically says there's a mutiny that's going to happen anytime. So you've got to agree to just get- hand your army over. The mutiny was being fomented by Bolivar's agents, uh, but uh, but San Martin saw the writing on the wall, and he basically said, "Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna start an internal war with Bolivar to uh, to for command of an army. Um, if you're gonna liberate Spain, then I'll go quietly." So uh, he agrees to go quietly for the sake of not helping the Spanish. Uh, and they toast basically his not. I don't want to use the word surrender, but um, they toast him stepping aside at a banquet. And Bolivar gives him a parting gift, a portrait of Bolivar. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really that's a really interesting. Um, it, it it looks like a turning point if you're going to you know unite all the former Spanish colonies, you know, not making a deal with San Martin is almost splitting yeah. the continent. Yeah. Unless he expected to take over later, I don't know. No, yeah. <laughs> so Lima at this time was like, uh, to say the word Lima is like a buzzword for wealth inequality, corruption, immortality, um, the, the ratio of, uh, of indigenous to, you know, so-called white people, Spanish and descended people is four to one. And the Indian, the indigenous majority, uh, it's a lot like Mexico that way, um, is, uh, still remembers the Incas, you know, like that wasn't that far back and there were rebellions, right. By Tupac Amaru and, and uh, others over the years, over the centuries. And Peru is run like in a really particularly uh, 
exploitative way. It's basically like there's the mines where the where the slaves are worked to death in the mines, and then there's the food that's grown on these plantations to feed the slave mines. Um, and the royalists are consequently terrified of the Indians. Um, and uh, the Lima patriots they figure they can probably liberate Peru by themselves. Once Bolivar has uh, dealt with San Martin, he doesn't think they can. So he figures, I'm not going to go and conquer and and crush the patriots. I'm going to wait for them to beg me to, uh, to come and rescue them from the Spanish, which he's right about this. They do eventually do that. So they say, okay, please, Bolivar, come and save us from the Spanish. And he says, oh, all right. <laughs> and he shows up and the indigenous love him. Uh, so here's his quote when he, as he's marching uh, in Peru. He says, I am every, he, he takes Lima. He comes into Lima fairly easily. He says, I am every day more content with Lima because I go down well with everyone. Men admire me and the women love me. The food is excellent. The theater good, adorned with beautiful objects and a fine carved door. Coaches, horses, walks, bulls, te deums, nothing is missing. Um, so uh, there's a patriot um, who's an incumbent dictator, uh, Aguirre. Bolivar sends him off. Uh, he deports him. Uh, and the Spanish, they royalists, they set up in Cusco. So there's even higher than Lima at uh, thousands and thousands of feet up the old Inca stronghold. Um, and the Spanish have 18,000 men up there. So Bolivar is trying to figure out what to do about this Spanish army because Lima's not, I mean, Peru is not liberated until that, while that army uh, remains in being. But he gets a really bad fever um, in 1824. And it, it might be like he, people are worried that he's going to die. While he's recovering um, in in a cabin north of the city, uh, the Spanish retake Lima. So he loses a lot of the early gains. He has to raise an army again. Um, but there's a mutant. Luckily, there's a mutiny among the Spanish. Um, so in a so in April, Bolivar gets better, um, and he organizes his army and he says, "Look, we'll march in May and we'll fight them in June." And so. Uh, Here's a couple of bits from his speeches. Uh, one of them is, he says, um, before they march in May, he says, all the armies of the world arm themselves for kings, for powerful men. Be the first to arm yourselves for laws, principles, for the weak, for the just. Which is a pretty cool, pretty cool quote. I mean, I guess anybody says that kind of stuff, but I, I like that. Um, in August uh, 1824, um, before a big battle that he wins, he says, soldiers, you're going to finish the greatest task which heaven can charge to a man to save a whole world from slavery. Um, they fight mostly a cavalry battle at a, at a place called Junin. The Spanish retreat back to Cusco. Bolivar does not want to go up to Cusco to get them. So he decides to wait until the rainy season is over. Um, and one of it's in fact, one of his generals under his command uh, Sucre, who's important in Venezuelan history, General Sucre uh, fights a big battle at Ayacucho and defeats uh, superior forces. He has 5,800 5, soldiers. He defeats 9,300 Spanish. The Spanish surrender. He captures 2,500 prisoners. Um, and Bolivar, he's in the villa at this time and he hears the news 
And he takes off his jacket and he throws his sword down and he says he'll never use them again. <laughs> he says, General Sucre has broken the chains with which Pizarro bound the empire of the Incas. So uh, that's at that point, it's over. Sucre is basically won. Peru is independent. Um, there's a port called Calao, uh, which holds out another year, but it's totally isolated. They're not able to do anything. So when when Bolivar marches into Cusco, he the march is symbolic of he chooses a ray, an array of symbols that he's re basically reversing the Spanish conquest. He abolishes the various systems to unjust systems to rule over Indians, a cacique system. Um, there's no forced labor allowed, only free contracts. You have to pay your workers. I know, I know. It's a pretty minimalist program, but uh, you have to pay your workers is something you have to, uh, he has to declare and enforce. Um, he also declares a land reform, which, uh, you know, redistributes the land. Unfortunately, it's not compatible with indigenous culture. They wanted... Um, collective land holding but right. he does the individual land holding so it ends up being fairly quickly reversed as we'll see sucre declares self-government for upper peru um and bolivar was initially upset about that but the people there really wanted that so sucre just made kind of an executive decision and when he explained it to uh, Bolivar, Bolivar agreed. So the capital of that country was La Paz, and Sucre had an idea for a name for that country, uh, Bolivia. So how how upset could Bolivar have been, uh, really, after that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so he goes to uh, Potosi, which is like the famous silver mine, you know, one of the most symbolic places of Spanish misrule, you know, the open veins of Latin America, as uh, Eduardo Galeano put it, like this, the mine at Potosi is, you know, the worst, the worst symbol, right? It's like where uncounted Indians uh, were worked to death. And uh, he makes a speech there. So last speech, I guess, of the of this episode, he says, we have come victorious from our Atlantic coasts, and in 15 years, in a battle of the giants, we have toppled the edifice of tyranny built calmly over three centuries of usurpation and violence. As for me, with my feet on this mountain of silver called Potosi, whose enormously rich veins were for 300 years the treasury of Spain, I regard this opulence as nothing when I compare it with the glory of having carried victoriously the standard of freedom from the burning shores of Orinoco to fix it here on the peak of this mountain. So it's pretty cool. Uh, Grand Colombia falls apart <laughs> pretty quickly. He tries to get at all the Latin American leaders together in June, 1826. Uh, most of, a lot of them don't even show up. Um, one of the six, they put six points together and one of them is actually the Monroe Doctrine. So they basically say, uh, nobody is allowed here except the U the U.S. They basically declare themselves kind of like the U.S. backyard. Um, uh, and Bolivar is in some ways like really trusting of the British and of the U.S. And one of the Mexican liberators actually warns him that that's uh, a mistake. Um, but, you know, I guess so. he's so focused on the Spanish, right, that he doesn't necessarily see uh, those threats 
Uh, he has a scheme to to liberate Cuba from Spain, but the Americans say no, no, <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> so they uh, they they're not for it, even though he was he thought he he was sounding out the British about the project, but the Americans were not in favor. Um, he does have himself set up as a dictator for two years um, in 1828. But he has kind of like a nervous breakdown in 1829, and he goes to his Bogota uh, Hacienda. Um, and basically, while he's gone, uh, the Congress, which he doesn't have uh, any kind of dictatorial control over, they pretty much undo most of the things that he wanted. They undo the land reform. Um, they don't pass emancipation the way he wanted it. Uh, they even don't do central government. They do, they pass kind of federalism. And Bolivar is so frustrated that he says, he who serves revolution plows the sea. Um, <laughs> so then the last things he said, he, he's in a fever on his deathbed and he, he says something really strange here. He says, the three great killers of humanity have been Jesus Christ, Don Quixote, and myself. So, you know, are these the feverish words of a, of a dying man? Probably, but still an interesting quote and then his last words apparently were let's go let's go these people do not want us here and on december 17th uh, 1830 um, at age 47 bolivar breathes his last so how do we assess bolivar um as a military leader uh he ends up liberating an empire of about a million square miles so territorially they're comparing you could compare him to genghis khan alexander the great um augustus caesar he's fought 300 battles uh he covered 16,000 miles on horseback so his men call him the culo de hierro culo being ass uh hierro being iron so he rides so much that he has an ass of iron. Um, and he's a real liberal egalitarian, right? Like you're very liberal, um, you know, equality before the law, not equal, not too much redistribution, although he does try to do a land reform. He was pro against slavery his whole life. Um, and he, uh, Chavez, you know, the re a lot of the reason people are looking at Bolivar a lot is because the Chavistas in Venezuela, they call themselves Bolivarian. Uh, Bolivarians and Chavez was always telling these stories from Bolivar's life, um, but uh, but in in fact, like Bolivar wasn't the most radical of the revolutions at this time, right? And not not the not by comparison to the Haitian Revolution hmm. or maybe even the French Revolution at its peak. Um, so uh, Mexican independence is also similarly incomplete. Uh, and so they they all have another revolutionary cycle in them. Mexico certainly does in another hundred years, which maybe we'll talk about uh, in a future episode. Mm. Uh, should I spend five minutes on Brazil the way the same way we did uh, with Mexico? Um, do you want to assess Bolivar first? Yeah. So how do we? Yeah, what do you think? How do we assess Bolivar? What do we? Well, the obvious first comparison would be to the American Revolution, where the leader of the American Revolutionary Army became the first president, whereas right. Bolivar got very quickly elbowed out of the way. Yeah. 
and you have to ask yourself why. So the first temptation is to, uh, I guess, compare the two men and, you know, blame Bolivar himself for being uh, naive, uh, lousy at politics, um, you know, or, or yeah. maybe, you know, find some personal failing to account for why he was not, uh, I guess, kept in a position of power or influence. But I think there's a big difference between South America and uh, the United States. The United States had 13 colonies, but they were all uh, fairly closely connected. I mean, you can already yeah. see a north-south division in terms of their economic interests, but you know, the difference between the Carolinas and Georgia, I don't think is that enormous. Yeah. Whereas and the geography, the geography is so different. Right? Yeah, the that's geography it. Geography of South America is just unbelievably vast and yeah. Varied. So how how much in common do the people of Peru and Venezuela have? They're probably used to, you know, being administered very separately yeah so trying to unite them and say oh you're all one country now is maybe too big a project yeah it's too big and it's it's too big and and you know i also just the way that the war was conducted and the way that the american revolution was conducted it's so different right like you have that declaration of independence which is like all these gentlemen um in a in a room making these declarations about the kind of system they're going to have. And with, um, with Bolivar, it's like they're, they march into the capital and then they make a declaration from, you know, it's, it's much more of a military process. It seems to me, you know, like the whole task is like to destroy the, to destroy the Spanish armies. Like he's got to go and like mission country, like Colombia, Venezuela, Peru. It's like, go to the country, destroy the Spanish armies, declare independence and declare the constitution. Right. And it, for all that, it's like, it's almost like because he was, you know, so far ahead of his contemporaries that they had to get rid of him, you know, somehow like, whereas Washington was really just one of lots of American revolutionaries. Right. Yeah, I, there might have been a fear that he would, you know, crown himself emperor or something like that. Yeah, I guess they did. There were people who wanted him to do that, right? Yeah, probably f friends and, and people in his own army. <laughs> like the people who really like my books. <laughs> you know, you should really, uh, you should really try your hand at this writing thing, at this being an emperor thing. I'm wondering, too, what the American Revolution would have looked like if, uh, say, Washington had liberated, you know, Massachusetts and New York, whereas uh, San Martin had liberated, uh, you know, Georgia and the Carolinas. Yeah. You know, now who's going to be president? So to, mm -hmm. his, to his credit, he, he Bolivar avoided uh, a squabble over the spoils or, or some kind of yeah. fight over who's going to be in power. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, there, But there were quite, and I mean, that might be to Bolivar's credit and that might be to San Martin's credit more than Bolivar because Bolivar was going to take over and San Martin was the one who decided to go quietly, right? Yes. So. Yes. It might've been a, one of the biggest mistakes that I can see in, in Bolivar's career. Yeah. 
uh, just being so forceful about it? I think if he had tried to win over San Martin to unite their you know, yeah. territory that they had liberated instead of having this little uh, posturing and yeah. <laughs> messing around, you know? Yeah. But his dream of, of a united uh, Gran Colombia, it, was it possible? I don't think so. I don't think so. It was never, there's no precedent, right? Because before uh, the Spanish, uh, it was a whole bunch of civilizations in all these different places. And then when uh, the Spanish administered it, they also kind of grafted themselves onto all these local societies. Yeah. The only common theme was extraction, right? Um, at that at that time. Yeah. So for Bolivar to say like we're gonna we're we're gonna be the ones who benefit from this, that's already that's pretty much the most you can do. Yeah. And I, I mean I've already admitted my my ignorance and it's modern as well. I don't know um to you know how South Americans get along. Uh, I I have a suspicion about Argentines and Bolivians, but um you know, how do Argentines feel about Venezuelans uh, and vice versa? And, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's true because that like that's one thing that Chavez uh, definitely has in common with Bolivar, right? Like Latin American integration. That was what he was all about. He wanted to create like the Mercosur, the Telesur TV network and the um, ALBA, right? Uh, the Bolivarian Alliance of the Americas. Yeah. And a lot of that has been, um, you know, ruined by Brazil going fascist uh, in 2016. So it wasn't it wasn't so much like that. Those projects survived Chavez's death, but they did not survive Brazil um, going to to Bolsonaro. Because you've got to have Brazil, right? I mean, Brazil's the big country. Oh, that might be a good time to talk a bit about Brazil. Okay. Um, this is really short, but I wanted to just say, uh, again, like, so Brazil, one of the unique things about Brazil was its slavery system. Um, Brazil was the uh, Bra recipient of slaves uh, in 1700. By 1700, uh, one million slaves were brought to Brazil. And Brazil has another really terrible distinction, which is that more slaves died than were born in Brazil. That's the only place. So in America, that's not true. In the U.S., there were lots of slaves being born. Um, you're born a slave, which is not good. But in, in Brazil, um, they come and they are basically worked to death. Um, wow. And this is, there's like, Patrick, what's that? Oh, I just said, wow. That's actually yeah. one of the arguments that uh, abolition came about Um because slaveholders in most places had so many slaves by this point that natural increase was going to be a a good enough yeah, supply of future slaves. I did not know which, that about Brazil. Well, but that makes sense because abolition in Brazil comes in 1889. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it does make sense that natural, because they didn't have natural increase. And it comes about because the British... Um, the British were blockading. Importation of slaves stopped only when British blockade in the 1850s. And that uh, a few decades of negative demographics basically does the rest. 
Um, and there's partly geographic reasons for that. So from West Africa to Bahia in Brazil, it's 50% shorter than going to uh, the U.S. Yeah. So it's a it's a shorter trip, which means it's cheaper, which means, you know, all these other things. And Brazil, um, the Portuguese controlled both ends of the slave trade. So there's fewer middlemen um, and there's taxes on both sides. So uh, because you make money on both ends, uh, you want to maximize the numbers on the trip, but you don't necessarily care that much uh, who gets there. Um, financial returns are way higher for sugar, Brazilian sugar, than Virginian tobacco. Um, and then they weren't, so like what, we're going to talk about the Industrial Revolution, but pr- Portugal didn't do these kinds of enclosures. They didn't have um, a big like settler population to export. Um, they're, they're not exporting a lot uh, of people or uh, material. They're They're doing like a, coastal trade slave economy um and and that's uh like that's the economy of brazil so because of the high death rate it also takes a longer time for brazil's uh slave you know like slave revolts there's lots of slave revolts but it's not like a it's such a big territory and the death rates are high so it prevents like the kind of solidarities that you see, for example, in Santo Domingo right? yeah, um, yeah. in Haiti. So it's like um, Patrick Wolf is a Australian scholar who does this kind of like worldwide uh, racism study, like a global racism, the different kinds of racism. So he analyzes this, these slave dynamics and of course, and also like the genocidal uh, policy towards the indigenous and like always pushing further and further into the jungle, into the Amazon. Um, and, uh, and like the Spanish empire in Brazil, it's also like creating <laughs> lots and lots of subdivisions and subcasts. Um, so it's like, you know, there's not too, it's not black and white. It's like every shade in between. Now, as far as, Brazil becoming the Brazilian empire that happens also as a result of Napoleon. So Napoleon um, ousts the Spanish uh, Royal, I mean the Portuguese Royal family and they go to Brazil. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the, that's the trick. And then they declare uh, independence, the de- independence of Brazil. And then once they've resolved uh, the Napoleon problem, Brazil just remains uh, as a, empire with an emperor from that royal family and uh it goes on there's two emperors pedro the first who rules until 1831 and pedro the second who rules until 1889 at which point brazil becomes a republic wow yeah order and progress that's their uh flag it's a little scary when the word order (laughs) is in the flag but uh so that's brazil no, I think you you nailed it on the head. They they don't have the population to have a huge settlement colony. So, and and they're so widespread. I mean, the, the Portuguese went all the way to Japan. So, uh, yeah. if you think of just how many sailors and explorers and traders they would have, gosh, it must it must have been a, a significant chunk of the Portuguese population. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. All right. Um, okay, so we are going to back to England, right? Yeah.
Well, we're going to try to tackle the Industrial Revolution. <laughs>